Welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's attempt to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I have an orals meeting, a meeting with one of my advisors in which we're going to be going over a lot of the material that I've been reading for the past 10 days or so. So basically it's going to be a lot like this podcast, except instead of a blank laptop screen in front of me, I'm going to be seeing the face of one of my professors. And instead of just silence, uh, I'm going to be hearing, you know, well-posed, intelligent questions that test how much I've absorbed the material that I'm supposed to be reading. So I'm a little bit nervous. Preparation for this, today I want to sum up some of the big ideas I've learned from my reading about the Victorian family and the home. So today the podcast will be in three sections. The first section will sum up some of the major ideas of what happens in the Victorian home over the 19th century. The second section will come up with some of the implications this might have for some of the big processes that I'm curious about. And finally, I'm going to be talking about historiography. That is, the kind of technical stuff about what historian says what and why that matters. So first, let's talk about the big themes that pop up through the story of the 19th century family and home. And there's three main points. The creation of the demographic transition, the creation of the separation of the spheres, and the idea of the child belonging only in school or the home. And we're going to hit them one by one. So first, let's talk about the demographic transition. One of the biggest changes to happen to the family in the 19th century was the change from really, really big families to much smaller ones. This is called the demographic transition by demographers and historians. So at its height, the average Victorian family had six kids, and one in five of these families had as many as 10 children. Now, this didn't mean that you'd have 10 kids at one home at any time, although that was entirely possible. These kids were spread out. Women would have relatively late ages of marriage, maybe 24, 25, and would keep on having children well into their 40s. And the children and the adults were not dying as much, and so the British population started to boom. Britain became one of the most densely populated countries in the world, when in the 17th century, it was about as densely populated as the rest of Western Europe. Furthermore, this population increase was not geographically even. An increasing amount of this population lived in cities. In 1851, for instance, Britain became one of the first countries in the world that had more people living in cities than who lived out in the countryside. But decreasing mortality didn't mean that people stopped dying. There was actually a really, really high chance for a child to grow up having lost at least one of their parents to death. Remember, the Victorian age is the age of orphans. It's not just a coincidence that they show up in our imaginary as these tiny little waifs with cold blackened faces. No, there were a lot of orphans around. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it's about 35% of children could expect to lose at least one of their parents before the age of 15. But starting in the 1870s, women had fewer children. This was a slow decline at first, but by the 1950s, the norm was what it is today, and that is small two-child families. No more Victorian mansions filled with 10 ruddy-faced kids. This had two big effects. First, it slowed down population growth as a whole. 
And second, it meant that the face of society was changing. Whereas in most of the 19th century, we have a young society, a society full of children. In the last half of the 19th century, you're getting more and more old people. And finally, in the 20th century, old age stopped being something that you just kind of lucked into and became something that people could expect. One of the weird things about the demographic transition is that it seems to happen everywhere and at different times. Any place that kind of goes through modernization, whatever you might call modernization, also goes through the demographic transition, this phenomenon of decreasing birth rates. Now, I have read a lot about this, but I don't think that scholars are exactly certain why the demographic transition happened in Britain. There's a bunch of contenders. It could be because of the greater available and cultural acceptance of contraception. It could be because children were more expensive. It could be because of an anti-sexuality you know, ideology that was pushed through Victorian England. Or it could be, my personal favorite as you know from yesterday, because death rates were falling and families just didn't need to have as many kids. Or, and I read this, it could be because of the rise of banks as a source of capital, people became less family and kin minded. The second big phenomenon I want to touch on is called the separation of the spheres. We kind of get what this means intuitively. In the 19th century, the world of home and the world of work became completely separate. The world of work and the public, the city in which the world of work existed, was a male domain. It was competitive. It was a little bit amoral. It was dirty and sometimes grimy. Whereas the home was the female's preserve. It was the realm of the wife, the mother, and the children. The big change here is the location of work and the people who work. So in the 18th century, we have this kind of bucolic image of rural employment. We have ruddy-faced men going out and doing field labor, and then bountiful women baking bread and keeping the house at home. And there was also within the home, you know, household industry. You might have a, a grandma spinning wool in the corner, some kids doing the darning, somebody, you know, pounding on a hammer. The household itself was an economic unit. But in the 19th century, an increasing proportion of the population lived in cities, as we've already noted. What we should also note is that even in rural areas, rural employment, agricultural employment was declining. I think in 1800, only about half of the population of rural cities directly worked in agriculture. So work was moving into the cities and it was also moving out of the home. The big thing here was wage labor. Ideally, wage labor was something only done by men and boys, but we know from this week's podcast that women did it as well, often quite a lot of women, and quite a lot of children as well. In 1843, the British cotton industry was about half child. But ideally, the man went off to work and brought money home to the woman who kept house. The house was the space for the moral rejuvenation of the family, and the woman's job was to make a morality of the home, was to create home as a virtue. So the ideal Victorian mother, and here we're talking about a middle-class ideal, was a person who kept track of the home. A big responsibility here was keeping care of the massive number of children, and because of decreasing mortality rates, this also meant that some lucky women had to look after their grandchildren as well. 
Children became the center of home life. They became the attention of their parents. They became the core of family rituals like birthdays and family holidays and yes, Christmas. And children became this pure idea of a untouched, innocent, playful time of life that we can see is poised entirely against the kind of amoral, rushing, disgusting market that people actually had to participate in. And it's really important to note that this image of a home was a middle-class image. And the only way that it could be kept up is by the work not only of middle-class women, but the working-class women who were not able to exist in a separate sphere. Servants were the biggest category of female employment in 1851. 20% of unmarried women 18 to 27 were employed as domestic servants. Four-fifths of professional households had a domestic servants, three-fifths of small employers did, and one-quarter of non-manual workers had a domestic servant. And this only fell in the 1890s. And part of the Victorian woman's responsibilities was to manage these domestic servants, to know how to talk to them, to know what they were supposed to do to clean and upkeep the home. And of course, we can't forget the domestic servants who worked outside the home like laundresses. And we also have to stress that for most middle-class people who aspired to this breadwinner homemaker household, that image was unreachable for whatever reason. The third big point I want to stress is the change in the notion of childhood. And there's two big transitions here. The first is the transition about where a child belonged. And the second is the transition in how the state is responsible for where children belong. Now to understand this, we should paint a little caricature of the household economy in the 18th century. In the 18th century, children will learn how to work intermittently within the home as part of the everyday economic activity of the 18th century family. They might help look after the kids when they're young, or they might start doing some part of their family's trade, like helping out making dough if they're a baker or something. And through this, slowly and slowly, they would learn how to accomplish their trade. Then maybe at the age of 14, they would be farmed off either to a farm or farmed off to some sort of apprenticeship system where they would learn their trade. School was mostly devoted to teaching the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Learning would happen usually on the job. It would happen as part of the training of a particular person for a particular trade. Learning then and childhood were embedded in economic systems. They weren't separate from it. But as we've talked about, in the 19th century, in the separation of spheres, economic production was moving outside of the family, and children, too, were becoming, you know, useless. They were becoming unemployed. Now, of course, not all children. The children of working-class people were working in factories. They were bringing home a wage. Actually, uh, young girls who had great manual dexterity because of their proficiency for sewing made really, really good mechanical operatives. And young boys were often making more at 17 than their fathers were just because they weren't as burnt out. But people didn't like to see this. People didn't like the prospect of young children of 11 and 12 going off to the factories and the coal mines and suffocating out there. And there was a slow rollout of legislation that was meant to stop children working. 
Now we can see how this relates to schooling in the sponsorship of some of the biggest anti-factory legislation. The Factory Act of 1833, which was the first act to put limits on children's work, was in part pushed by people involved in the nascent schooling movement. And this was the trend in the 19th century, legislation that limited the places that children could be and legislation that helped the nascent school movement. At the end of the, uh, the time period that we're studying, at 1914, children who were not in school were the rarity. So let's talk about how this affected some of the big topics that I'm interested in. And the first is this thing called civil society. Civil society is this idea of a separate realm that's independent of the family and the state and sometimes the market. I, I think it's very important for a number of reasons that we're gonna to get to. It's a chief research topic of mine. But I'm just gonna talk a little bit about how these changes to family life affected civil society. In the 18th century, which is my main focus of research, civil society was much more public. People would go out and have their club meetings and hang out in taverns and uh, pubs and even public streets in which there was a lot more promiscuous urban socializing. The places where clubs met were public houses or coffee houses where people could come and go as they pleased. But in the 19th century, these same spaces, even the same, you know, exact same pubs were more closed off. They were more private. There were private club rooms. Clubs started to build their own club houses that were completely shut off from other people. Coffee houses that had once been opened turned subscription. And there was a geography to the public. The working class areas, say, of London had a rich public associational life where people would, you know, go get drunk and party out on the streets and talk to one another. And dandies and flaneurs and other, you know, middle and upper class men would often go in and vicariously participate in this kind of wild public conviviality. There arose shopping districts, club districts, eating districts, places where people would go to do particular things. But this was also highly gendered. For example, women were advised not to go to the area of Pall Mall where there were a bunch of gentlemen's clubs because the rich, drunk men might go off and sexually harass the women walking by. Furthermore, all these civil society organizations became a lot more like a separate home, a home away from home, a place to do domestic things like eat and drink and relax. They too began to be figured as places outside the market where people could go to refresh themselves, not to change the market, not to change society per se, but to get respite. We can also see these changes in the household and family having an effect on politics. One of the biggest, I think, is in the rise of the sense of the working man's politics that happened after the 1884 Reform Act gave all working men the vote. In this, the male breadwinner was enshrined as a political commitment, as a thing that the state should work towards being able to make real. And when, for some reason or whatever, males were not able to be these breadwinners, then it was a matter of political and social attention. 
The second, and perhaps more subtle, is that the rise of illiterate and, perhaps more importantly, numerate populace meant a change in politics. Because so many people could now read and understand numbers due to their schooling, then politics could take place on a truly national level, not through face-to-face -face interactions, as it had done before, not through people reading newspapers and coffee houses like had gone on in the 18th century, but by people selecting their own reading material and reading it and digesting it and coming up with their own opinions. It's essential to realize how important numbers were to this story, because also in the 19th century, as we saw from our discussion of statistics, people started to get increasingly large amounts of numbers about society, and politics in part became about juking the stats, as they say in The Wire, about solving the problems that these numbers reveal. And for those numbers to become political problems, enough people involved in politics need to understand numbers. They need to be able to compare different numbers and know the magnitude of difference between them. And let's not just give education the credit for increasing numeracy. I read a very interesting paper, part of which argued that it was the rise of gambling that helped people understand probability and statistics, because, you know, if you wanted to bet on the horses, you have to have a good idea of the odds of your horse winning and what that means. So now let's move on to the last little bit about historiography, about the debates that historians have about this topic and why it matters. Now, one of the striking things to me about this historiography is the broad agreement about the basic facts. There's a broad agreement that the demographic transition happened, for example. People disagree about why and why that matters, but we understand that it did indeed happen. There's also an agreement about the ideal of the separation of the spheres. But there's a couple big differences that I see between the people that I've read, mainly about the focus that they put on their analysis and the explanations that they offer for why things happen. So one of the big things is class. Some people, when they're talking especially about domestic ideology or the separation of the spheres, are thinking only of the middle classes. Some people, like Cohen, take middle class ideals as becoming normative, for them, the things that the middle class do become the things that everybody else want to do, and so they can study the middle class and not have to worry about the massive numbers of working class people or about the small numbers of upper class people. This is helpful, of course, because the middle class left a lot of written material, which makes them a lot easier to study. Contrarily, other people take this meeting of the classes to be the key site of their analysis. Walkowitz, for instance, looks at how the middle class experience was generated through comparing what they did in their well-ordered homes with what the working class people did in their dangerous homes. And because of this, the generation of public space, the idea of the, the space where people could actually interact, itself became dangerous because it was a place where the classes could mix, where these dangerous elements like prostitutes could rub shoulders with eminent businessmen and you know, perhaps even rub other things as well. The other big disagreement are the critiques that people lay at the foot of the breadwinner homemaker household. Very, very few people uh, are really misty-eyed for the breadwinner homemaker household. One person who I read was Gertrude Himmelfarb, who's a, a noted conservative, 
And in her eyes, the breadwinner homemaker household creates this alternative morality that is able to stand in for Christianity and give people the sort of values that they need to survive in a capitalist society. But most people have more critiques about the breadwinner homemaker household. For Gillis, the home is set up as a symbolic core of a person's life. It becomes the thing that gives their lives meaning. Coming home and playing with the kids and eating dinner and having Christmas becomes the key symbolic moment of a man and woman's life. But this is a problem for Gillis because the circle of the home is really, really small. And since it's really small, it's really fragile. Death or divorce or disagreement or migration can all upset the family home. It can create that phenomenon that we know so well, the empty nester, the big, gigantic, once loud house that is now turned quiet. For Walkowitz, the separation of the spheres is a part of social control, something that is meant to discipline the working classes and the women for the interests of men. The breadwinner homemaker household is not something that gives people their own little spheres of, of, of autonomy like it does for Cohen. No, the breadwinner homemaker household is a boot stomping on people's faces, making them be the kinds of people that the liberal state needs them to be. The final big disagreement that these people have is in the key motors of change. The first big motor, and one that I'm really, really sympathetic to, is the Industrial Revolution. You're going to hear this motor come up again and again and again and again in this podcast. The Industrial Revolution changed everything. Actually, when I was sitting around for dinner with my girlfriend's dad, and I was talking about some of these topics, he paused and looked off into the distance and said, isn't it the same time as the Industrial Revolution? Yes, yes it was. A ton of stuff changes during the Industrial Revolution. But the problem is connecting the Industrial Revolution with these changes, about making a convincing argument about the connections that happen between the one and the other. So for somebody like Gillis, the Industrial Revolution, by changing the site of work and the nature of work, creates something like the separation of the spheres. You know, because people are no longer working in the home, the home becomes idealized, right? This is also kind of the argument of Hugh Cunningham, who talks about how new ideas of discipline were inculcated in children to encourage them to become good workers. The other big motor of change that I see in these readings is consumer society and print. We can think of this as a cultural motor. For these scholars, it's not the factories and work that's changing things, but rather this new world, this new wider discourse of, of, of magazines and newspapers and public spaces and music halls that are creating the changes. Thanks for joining us today on Making of Historian. I hope you had fun. As always, I have to thank Jonathan Lear uh, for the fantastic intro and outro music. You can find his album Reflection on his Bandcamp page or on Spotify, or you can go to historian.live to get a link so that you can give him money. Please do. Thank you to Duncan Barton for the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful logo that graces the iTunes store. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. And if you want to thank me for making this podcast, you can do a couple things. Go on to iTunes and either rate or review us, or both. 
It's really important. If iTunes gets a lot of ratings at once, it thinks that this podcast is hot, and then it bumps it up in its algorithms. You can also share us on social media. Um, that's also super important. You can like our page at the Making of a Historian Facebook group, and you can also go into SoundCloud and like hit whatever buttons you want there. You can check out the website at historian.live. It has show notes, uh, which contains reading lists for each episode, and sometimes, if I can be bothered, pictures. Thanks very much, and I'll see you guys tomorrow when I'll tell you how my meeting with my advisor went uh, and what sort of criticisms he's leveled at this kind of schematic view of children and the family and the home that I've outlined to you guys today. Thanks for listening.